Amen. Um, oftentimes, when I find myself in um, a counseling situation, uh, mostly when I'm talking to uh, um, an engaged couple that is seeking premarital advice, getting ready to make their um, promise and their covenant to one another, not just then, but uh, other times also, many issues, uh, a lot of times the things that, that I will bring up first after listening and hearing or, or, or getting in is uh, the importance of foundation. And when you're applying that to a marriage uh, or a relationship or uh, a business startup or a situation or circumstance in your life or a direction that you're taking in, in your personal walk or whatever it is, um, the importance of foundation is, is everything. Because uh, what foundation determines, and it can be in something physical or something spiritual, something in the world or something in our lives, is the foundation determines the, the size, the shape, and the strength of the structure that's going to be built on top of that foundation. And so if you were just looking at a house that was built or that's being built, you know, there's a neighborhood near me where they're developing uh, crazy, these massive houses, you know, and you drive through it. And they, the first thing they do is they, they set the foundation. And as soon as you see the foundation, you don't even have to see the house, and you know what the house is going to look like. But the foundation is what determines the size, strength, uh, and the shape of the building. Now, once the building is complete, you can trace the building back down to its foundation, and its foundation makes sense. Now, if the foundation of a structure is faulty, or if it's incomplete, or there's something lacking uh, in its integrity, then that's going to affect the entirety of the structure after it. And so what happens so many times in people's lives is that they uh, get into a marriage, or they start a business, or they go down a certain road, but they don't take time to develop the foundation of what it is that they're doing or where it is that they're going. They're, there's a problem with the foundation. They're doing something wrong at the very beginning. And what I'll often say to people is that the problem with that is that you can build that way for a while. But at some point, if there isn't a strong foundation underneath what you're building, you're not going to be able to add that foundation later on. You're going to have to tear down the structure or let it fall down naturally as a result of the weakness of it. And then you're going to have to start at the beginning and lay the foundation properly again before you can build again. And so foundation is a very important thing because foundation determines outcome. And so as we live these days that we're in now, so far from the very beginning of God's creation and God's foundation and order of things, we look at history from the very beginning of things as we study the book of Genesis, and what we see is the foundation. And the amazing thing about the foundation of God that's given to us in the early chapters of Genesis is that it is that which makes sense of everything that we see going on in the world today. And so, though these things took place so long ago, they relate to the things that are going on in our everyday lives even now, and they make sense of them. And so it's an amazing privilege and opportunity that we have to go back in the Bible and to study the things that God has laid as the foundation so that we might make sense of our lives now and understand Him and His truth. Now, in chapter 1, we studied the six days of creation, the days in which God made everything that exists. And now as we come into chapter 2, we find out what happens uh, after that or from there. And so the beginning of chapter 2, God gives to us the summary statement 
that encapsulates the completion of his creation. He says in verse 1, he says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. He tells us that now that the six days, the six 24-hour periods of which there was an evening and a morning, that they are now complete, that everything that God made in the physical structure of this universe, not just the world, but even the heavens, that all of those things are now completed. God did not create or add to his creation after the fact. He says that it is completed and that it is finished, and therefore he has set things the way he wanted them to be. For him to create or institute after this fact would imply that God is less than perfect and that he is not. And thus he set with intention to create what he set, and he did what he created or did what he intended to do, and now he says that it is done. But then he adds to that that he created everything, the heavens and the earth, but he says, in addition to that, and all the host of them. And so what does he mean when he says that he created not only the heavens and the earth, but all the host of them? Well, in the context of the verse, the host of something is that which facilitates. That's what a host does. A host facilitates a guest. And so the context of what God is saying when he completed in his creation and all the host of them is he's saying that not only did he finish his work on the heavens and the earth, but he also finished his work on all that they will facilitate or all that they were created for. So what he's saying is that not only did he create the stage upon which the drama of humanity will play out, but he has also written the script. That in God's mind, in the time that he created all things in those six days, he also in his mind already has foreseen and foreconcluded all of the things that will happen throughout the entirety of the history that that stage was prepared for. So not just the stage is set, but the drama has also been constructed in the mind of God. As we read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, what we find is that there are seven times or seven things that God says throughout various places in the Scripture that he had already done and already completed from the foundation of the world. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, we're told that all of God's works were completed from the foundation of the world. Meaning, not just the stage of creation and what he made, but even the works that God would do and accomplish in that creation, that all of those things were already done in God's mind from the moment that he created the world. I'm waiting for the verse to go up on the screen, hoping that Hebrews 4, 3, thank you, flashes up there so that at least you can see it if you don't have time to write it down or turn there. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, Jesus speaks of those that will one day stand in his presence and he says that he will say to them, come ye blessed of my father and inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Meaning that the very kingdom that we await and are hoping for and one day we'll see if we know Jesus Christ through his blood and his cross, that that kingdom was already prepared for us before God ever spoke anything into existence, that it was created from the foundation of the world. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus tells us that his very teachings, 
and the mysteries and secrets and wisdom that were communicated through his teachings, that those things existed from the foundation of the world. He says that these secrets that have been kept secret from the foundation of the world are now revealed unto you, meaning that the very teachings and ways of God were already completed, constructed, and done in the very beginning. In Luke chapter 11, verse 50, Jesus says that even the blood of the martyrs, those that shed their blood for the name of God from Abel all the way to Zechariah and beyond, that all of that was already preordained and known of God from the foundation of the world. The blood of the martyrs, which was shed from the foundation of the world, God already knew. In Psalm chapter 139, that famous psalm that has brought so much comfort to so many of God's people throughout the ages, David says in Psalm 139, verses 15 and 16, he declares there, and I didn't put a post-it, of course, there, but it says, he says, um, my substance was not hid from you when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members or days or circumstances were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, David acknowledged, recognized, and then spoke by the Spirit of God that all of the things that happened to him in an individual life were already known and written out by God before any of them took place in actual real time, according to David's life. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, and Revelation chapter 17, verse 8, Jesus, or the, the, the Word of God, tells us that our being chosen to be citizens in His kingdom and have our names written in the Lamb's book of life, that that was known by God from the foundation of the world. That before a single day of God's drama was played out, He already knew that you would receive the gift of His salvation and that your name would be written in his book, and that you would be in his kingdom. And then finally, seventh, and probably most important and most significant of all, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, tells us that the lamb, the blood of the lamb, that it was slain from the foundation of the world. And so before God even created or set Adam in his place, and before one of his days was laid out, all of the works of God, all the things that he would do, all of the people that he would create, all of the actions and, and, and events that would take place in human history, including the very death of his son upon the cross, were all known and completed by God. Thus the heavens and the earth were created and all the host of them, all that they were intended for, it was all completed in the very beginning. So what's the point of God saying this and of our understanding because what it shows us is that God is not only sovereign, but that God is intentional and God is calculated in everything that he does. And thus we conclude that God is responsible and God is, more importantly, trustworthy. That he knows everything that will happen, everything that has happened, and everything that's going to happen. And thus God is a safe place for me to place my trust. I can put my complete and faithful trust in him because I know that he knows everything that's happening in my life, everything that's going to happen, and that he's got it all in control. It's all in his hand. He's trustworthy in it. And thus it was all completed. Then he goes on to tell us in verse 2, he says, And on the seventh day, so the six days of creation have passed, 
And now the seventh day comes, and it says that on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Now this is the first mention in the Bible of the number seven in its context being used uh, for something. We've talked in past studies about the laws of first mention and the significance of when something is mentioned for the first time. But the number seven is a very significant number in the Bible. It's a number that represents perfection, a number that represents completion or fullness, and in some ways it represents God because of God's perfection. It's the number of God. And thus, as we go through the Bible, and even as we consider creation, we realize the significance and the importance of the number seven. We know that there were seven days in God's creation, created for six and then rested for one. And thus, because of that, there's seven days in a week. There are also seven colors, major colors, that make up the spectrum or the rainbow, Roy G. Biv, if you remember that, you know, from your early education days. There are seven musical notes that make up a normal scale that ministers to our hearts. When we consider God's creation of man being made in his image, the number seven, very significant. There are seven openings in man's head. You know, the two eyes, the two nostrils, the two ears, and then the mouth, perfectly divided in three and a half sections, or section two sections of three and a half. There are seven major body parts, the two arms, the two legs, you know, the head, the torso, and you know, such that God has made. Seven major systems. You have the respiratory and the circulatory and uh, the endocrine system and the nervous system and the muscular skeletal system. And, you know, I wrote these down because I knew I'd get to like five or six of them and forget. But you have the, you have the nervous system and uh, which one? The reproductive system. But there's seven of the major systems that make a man, you know, that God made, God made in his image, you know. When we look at the Bible and we see the significance of the number seven in the truth of God that he has laid out, again, the seven days of creation. There were seven feasts that Israel was to keep, two of which are kept for seven days. There were seven lampstands in the menorah in the temple, which we're told then in Revelation represent the seven churches, completion. The seven spirits of God, according to Isaiah 11, chapter 2, and Revelation uh, mentioned in a couple of places. Seven days were observed for a Jewish wedding. and I mean, we could spend literally a week just talking about all of the times that the number seven is significant in the Bible. There are some um, Bible critics that uh, try to say, and, I, and I, I just throw this out there because I love this stuff, you know, but uh, try to say that the Gospel of Mark, that the last 12 verses of Mark 16 shouldn't be in the Bible, that they were added later, you know, and so you'll, most of you could probably turn there right now, and if you have verses, uh, you know, 9 through 20 there in Mark, if they're even there, there's probably a footnote somewhere that says the most reliable manuscripts don't have these verses in them, they were added later, and, 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 and all that kind of thing. Well, there was a guy about 100 years ago, a Russian theologian named Ivan Penin, and he, want, he was just serious about the scriptures. And so he took those 12 verses and he picked them apart in the original Greek language according to the text that was received. And what he found when he dug apart in those verses, he found that the number of words in that passage is divisible by seven. And that the number of letters in the Greek language is also divisible by seven. And that the number of consonants in that passage is divisible by seven. And the number of vowels in that passage is divisible by seven. 
And the number of words that were spoken by Jesus is divisible by seven. And the number of words that was not spoken of Jesus by Jesus in that passage is also divisible by seven. And he just went through and he picked this thing apart and, and, and showed just a thousand ways wherein everything in that passage is divisible in some way reflective of the number seven. And then he figured out what it would take and how long it would take for someone to construct that on purpose. And what his conclusion was is that it would take 100 supercomputers, 400 million years coming up with a try every 10 seconds in order to create a document that had that kind of ability to have that kind of thing happen, divisible by seven. It's amazing when you start to consider what God has placed in his word and also the significance of the number seven. I throw that out there because I hope in all of these teachings and Bible studies that you get from this church that there are Bible scholars that are raised up in our midst and you need to know that the number seven is very significant in the Bible and that God often uses it as a thumbprint or a signet to show his involvement in a thing. And so the first mention of the number uh, seven in, in this thing, pointing to God's involvement. Another thing that, um, that, that comes up in scripture that we see here for the very first time is the pattern of God of six and one. Six days of God's creation followed by one day of rest. He created for six and then he rested for one. And that pattern of six and one becomes something that's repeated and very significant within the Bible. A little bit later on in God's history, after first establishing it in creation, he's going to say that if someone is a slave, they can be a slave for six years, but after six years, they're going to go free in the seventh year. He says concerning um, credit and, and those that would borrow money, that if you borrow money, that, you, that, that the term of that borrowing is never to go beyond six years. There's six years of indebtedness followed by then the year of release. Then there was concerning mortgages and different things. And so God constantly, he said that the land, when you sow the land, you can sow the land for six years, but in the seventh year, you're to let the land rest. And so we see this progression or this pattern of six and one, six years of labor, six years of slavery, six years of debt, six years of toil, followed by then one day or one year or one period of rest to go on after that. And thus God establishes this system. Now, why is that so significant? Because probably the greatest expression of this pattern is in God's plan for world history in and of itself. The ancient rabbis believed that God would follow the same pattern of six and one, not just with the Sabbath and the week and then the years and the debt and the slavery, but also with his plan and his existence of human history. Two times in the Bible, once in Psalm chapter 90, verse 3, the only Psalm that was written by Moses, and then once in the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, the Bible says this, it says that a day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And so the rabbis took the word of Moses and they plugged it into God's plan for humanity. And they set forward or set forth that humanity, that God's plan with humanity would last for 6,000 years, six days with God, and that it would then be followed by a day of rest. I stumbled upon this in my study there was a rabbi from the 13th century whose name 
was uh, Moses ben Hamad, but he was called in his uh, you know, native place, Nachmenides, was his Greek name, but he was a fierce conservative defender of the scriptures. He was not a Christian. He did not believe in Yeshua, but he lambasted anyone who tried to negate from the Torah or from the Old Testament scriptures, and he was a literalist. He believed in miracles. He believed in the Bible, and he was known for uh, his hold to it, and he said this. It's written in his book, Uh, on God's um, plan for creation. And he says this, and, and just listen very carefully to his words. He says, The first day of creation, which saw the creation of light, embodies the first millennium of history, the millennium of Adam, whom the Midrash calls the light of the world. When the world was still saturated with the knowledge of its creator and was sustained by the indiscriminate benevolence of God. The second day on which the creator distinguished between the spiritual and the physical elements of his creation yielded a second millennium of judgment and discrimination as reflected in the flood which wiped out a corrupt humanity and spared only the righteous Noah and his family. The third day of creation on which the land emerged from the sea and sprouted forth greenery and fruit-bearing trees encapsulates the third millennium in which Abraham began teaching the truth of the one God and the Torah and was given, uh, that was given on Mount Sinai. The fourth day on which God created the sun and the moon, the two great luminaries, the greater luminary and the lesser luminary, corresponds to the fourth millennium in which the first temple and the second temple in Jerusalem served as the divine abode from which light emanated to the entire world. Now, he missed the major thing that happened at the end of that millennia, which was the light of the world came into the world and really divided light from darkness, and that was Jesus Christ himself. But he goes on to say that the fifth day of creation the day of fish, birds, and reptiles unfolded into the lawless and predatory dark ages of the fifth millennium. And the sixth day, whose early hours saw the creation of the beasts of the land followed by the creation of man, is a reflection of our millennium, a millennium marked by strong, forceful empires. Remember, this is the 13th century, you know, 1200 BC, or AD, rather, Forceful empires whose beastly rule will be followed by the emergence of Mashiach, the perfect man who brings to realization the divine purpose in creation and ushers in the seventh millennium, the world to come, a time of perfect peace and tranquility. And so that was the view that was held by them, that a day is with the Lord as a thousand years, as a thousand years is as a day. And just as God created and labored for six and rested the seventh, so also creation itself would toil under the bondage and slavery of sin for six millennia, six days, but that the seventh millennia would be a period of rest and peace and refreshment, the millennia of God. Now you say, why do you take the time when you, to, just to develop this in the study of the foundational things of Genesis? Here's why. Because when you piece together the dates of Scripture and you come to the place and ask the question, where did creation begin and how long ago was it? You come to the conclusion that it was about 4,000 B.C., 4,000 years before Christ came into the world. 
And you can do that. And in fact, if you want to ask that question later and say, where's the Q&A? Give us the scriptures. I can give you five or six scriptures where you can go through and tie that together with the Bible to see where creation began. So if you have 4,000 years from creation to Christ and 2,000 years from Christ to the present day, then where does that put us? It puts us right on the cusp of the beginning of the seventh day. And it's an amazing thing as we look at the culmination of all things that the Bible said would be prior to the coming of Christ. And we look around in our world today and we see those things happening and unfolding at a pace that is dizzying. And we realize that we're living in incredibly, prophetically significant times. And to realize that God had it all laid out from the very beginning. He knows the end from the beginning. Acts chapter 15, verse 8, it says that known of God are all his works from the beginning of the creation, that he set it all in motion. So much more I want to say about that, but we do have to move on in this. The other reason why I share that with you and share this with you is because as a new believer, when I first gave my life to Christ at the age of 19, somebody gave a Bible study where they shared something very similar to what I just shared with you. And what that did in my heart when I heard it is it made me question or ask myself the question, can the Bible actually be that reliable and can it actually give to us that level uh, of, of insight into our God and into life and humanity? And can it actually be that true? And what it did is it set me on a quest that made me a student of the scriptures. And what I found is that God is more than anything I could have expected in terms of what he has laid out for us in his word, not only in its completeness, but in its accuracy and trustworthiness. And my hope is that maybe for someone here, and maybe for some of you here saying, that was a complete waste of my time because I could care less about how a thousand years is like a day and so on. But maybe there's someone here that says, oh my goodness, could it be that the things that he's saying have some credence to them? And is there more that God has laid out for us? And that you'll say and become and take and be in the Bible what you can be. It's an amazing, amazing thing that we have before us uh, in, in the word of God. And so he says that he rested. He blessed the seventh day. He sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God created and made. Now I want to read the rest of the chapter and then give comments and then close. Notice in verse 4. He says, then these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison. That is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is bdellium and the onyx stone. 
And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth or surrounds the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hedekel, which is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it for in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And we won't go any further than that tonight uh, in our Bible study. But he begins, begins this passage in verse 4 by saying that these are then the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. The word generations in the Hebrew, it's an interesting word. Uh, it's called by the, um, you know, the, the rabbis, the toldots, T-O-L-D-O-T-S. And there are 11 times in the book of Genesis that this phrase is used, that these are the generations. Here, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Later, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Then these are the generations of the sons of Abraham and, and so on. And, and you'll see that phrase pop up from time to time. And what the phrase literally means is that this is the record of what happened after. And so you could read this as saying that this is what happened after the creations of the heavens and the earth. So we read the creation account. Now we find out what happened after the creation itself took place. And the first thing that he tells us concerning the creation is that on day three, when God caused the plants to grow, that we're told that when God first ordained that to be, that those plants and herbs and trees had not yet sprung up out of the ground on day three. But at that time, God also initiated a mist that would rise up from the ground and that would water the earth because as of yet, it had not rained upon the earth. And it will not rain upon the earth until Noah's flood comes when we get to Genesis chapter six, which is about 2,000 years in date time from where we are here at the creation account. And so in the very beginning, in the pre-flood world, the water or the earth was watered by a mist that came up from the ground. And that's how things began on day three. Then it jumps in verse seven to talk about the creation or the formation rather. It wasn't the creation, but the formation of man. It says that the Lord God formed the man, in verse 7, from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and that man became a living soul. When God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1, the word in the Hebrew that's used is bara, which means created something out of nothing. But when God says that he formed the man from the dust of the ground, he doesn't use the word bara, but rather he uses the Hebrew word yatsar, which means a rearranging of a pre-existing substance. So literally what God did is he took a handful of dirt, 23 elements, and he reformed and shaped it to make the body that would become the living soul, Adam. Isn't that flattering to realize that the same 23 elements that make a handful of dirt is what your soul and spirit live in sitting here tonight. We are dust, and to dust we shall return. Our bodies are tents, tabernacles, temporary dwelling places wherein our spirit and soul reside until we leave them in death. 
But the Bible tells us here that life comes from God, that he's the one that breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and it was only then that he became a living soul. Prior to this, the hardware was there, but he didn't have any software. Now, some of us know people like that, right? (laughs) Sometimes I feel like that. The hardware is here. I don't know what's going on with the software. But God alone is the one that can initiate both the substance and then the invisible life that makes us what we are. It came from man, or from God. God's the one that gave life to man. Life comes from God. Then we're told in verse 8 that God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And I want you to take note of that and, 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 and understand that Eden itself was a larger mass than just the garden itself. That it was eastward in Eden that God planted the garden where he intended to place the man. Meaning that Eden wasn't restricted to just the garden itself, but the garden was only a part of Eden. Later on, we're going to read that a river came out of Eden, split into four heads, and those four heads are what watered the garden itself. And so recognize that Eden was a larger place than just Um, the garden that we think of it to be, and that it was there that God intended to place the man that he formed. And then in verse 9, he tells us something that is extremely significant. He tells us that there were two trees that were present there in the Garden of Eden. First of all, the tree of life that was in the midst of the garden. And second of all, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, before we comment at all on these two trees and what they do and what their significance is, the bottom line of what God wants you and I to understand by telling us that these trees were there planted in the garden is that we would know and understand beyond any shadow of a doubt that there are two things that we as human beings are not equipped with in and of ourselves. Number one is life and number two is the ability to self-govern. Those two things do not come pre-programmed in what God designed us to be. There is an outside source wherein those things must come from. If there is a tree of life, then it implies that life does not flow from the source that is me, myself. I must get it from somewhere else. And the knowledge of good and evil, that is knowing what to do, evaluating and calculating what is right and wrong or good or bad for my life, that that does not come from within me. I was not created with the capacity to know good and evil. That must come from somewhere else. And so God tells us that those two trees were placed in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I believe, and I could be wrong, but I don't think I am, that Adam did partake from the tree of life. I think it was something that he would constantly be partaking of. It was something that was freely given to him there, and I believe that he constantly was a partaker of it. That it wasn't until after the fall, when death had come into man, that then he was cut off from access to the tree of life. And had he partaken of the tree of life after that, then he would have lived eternally in a fallen state, but God restricted that from happening. And so I don't think it was that where God said, okay, two two trees, tree of life, tree of knowledge. Yes, eat from that one, don't eat from that. And Adam was like, ah, I'll wait on that one. I want to know what that tastes like. I don't think it was like that necessarily. I believe he did eat from the tree of of life. Now, the tree of life is mentioned here in Genesis chapter 2 and then again in 3. And then not again until Revelation chapter 22, where it is seen in the kingdom that's prepared for us in heaven. 
And it tells us that the river that proceeds from the throne of God, that on either side of the river, the tree of life is planted, and that in the midst of the street that makes up the main street of his kingdom, that in the center of that street grows the tree of life, and that every month it bears fruit, every month for 12 months of the year, that its fruit is there for us, and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. But as of right now, the tree of life is not within our reach. Maybe for some of you that sets you free. It's not coconut oil. It's not a hava. It doesn't exist. Many of us chase it, right? Like we've been looking for this thing forever. Where, Where is the tree of life? You can't get to it. You will. We will. But as of yet, as of now, it was in the garden and now it is not. Why? does he give to us in verses 10 through 14 the dimensions and and locations of these rivers and the substances that were surrounding them? I believe, because we don't know where they are, the whole landscape of the world has changed at this point. We don't even know if the Euphrates that he mentions here is the same Euphrates that we know of to be in, in, you know, the Middle East where it is. But I believe that the reason why God sets these things before us is so that we would have some idea of the size of, that the Garden of Eden actually was. And what we get from this, regardless of where these rivers were and whatnot, is that the Garden of Eden itself probably was similar in size to that of the entirety of the Middle East as we know it today. That's an area of three and a half million square miles. So if you can imagine a garden, three and a half million square miles that was filled with every resource you could ever need. Whether it was the wealth of the gold or the bdellium or the onyx or the beauty or the resources or everything that was put before us. And God made this beautiful paradise and then he set the man in it. And then at the end of our passage, what God does is God gives to man his purpose or his responsibility while he is on the earth. He is placed in the garden and he is given the task to dress it and to keep it. Now, that is an amazing thing for me to, 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 to consider and to think about. That would be like God taking you and giving you your own planet and then giving you a stake of real estate and saying, hey, I've got some place for you and I've got something I want you to do. And then he places you in paradise and he says, see all this land? Look left, look right, look up, down. It's all yours. You say, God, how big is it? Three and a half million. Three and a half million acres of land. Whoa. No, 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 no. Not three and a half million acres. Three and a half million square miles of land. It's yours. Dress it. Keep it. Subdue it. Build on it. Beautify it. Create in it. Express. Live. Enjoy. It's yours. I've given it to you. I've set you in it. God, this is unbelievable. What are my work hours? Your work hours are what you want. It's not work hours. This isn't labor. This isn't toil. This is is your joy. Wait till you touch the first thing. You're not going to be interrupted by an alarm clock. You're not going to have someone come to you and say, well, you have to stop right now because you have to come to dinner, you know, in the whole thing. You have unlimited resource. You have unlimited energy. You have unlimited time. You get to fellowship with me and hear my voice in things. You get to be an extension of my creative powers. And this is yours. This is your land. This is your delight. And you get to walk with me in it. It's yours. It's all yours. Sometimes I hear people say, you know what? I'm not sure if I want to go to heaven. 
Because I'm not sure what I'm going to do there. And I think sometimes the things that I'm looking forward to and hoping in an earth are more exciting or more, have more promise or hold more hope than that which is in heaven. I don't know about a cloud and a harp. and Listen, just think for one moment. If this is what Adam was given in his state at the very beginning, three and a half million, what is it going to be like for you and I to be in the place that we were created for, doing the thing that we were created to do, with absolutely zero limitations to the resource, energy, time, or potential of what it is that we could create and do in that place. This is a precursor of what is to come and what awaits us in the kingdom that he has prepared for us from the foundation of the world. This is one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture when you really think about and consider what God did with Adam in putting him there. This is not labor. This is joy. Have you ever felt in this world, as I have and do, that you just don't fit? I mean, think about it. Think about your job. Think about where you live, your location. Think about what you get to do. Think about the, um, the, the time ratio of what you spend in, in your various things. You spend this much time working, this much time sleeping, this much time you know, uh, tending to responsibilities, this much time in hobbies. And, and you look at those ratios, and, and nobody, nobody says, that's, that's it. Got it. Yes, that's what I've been waiting for. I can do, it's perfect, the proportions. Where I live, what I do, who I, it's all perfect. Not one of us. Every single one of us has this feeling inside. I, 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 I know there's something more. I know I'm not there yet. I don't know where I'm going, but I know I'm not there yet. And you know why? Because you're not there yet. We weren't created for this world. But the moment we hear that trumpet sound, and in the twinkling of an eye, we stand before him in his presence. In that very moment, we're going to say, this is the thing I've been waiting for. I tasted it on that morning when I saw the sun come up in just that perfect way, and the hues of the colors, and there was something that struck me when, when the smell of the fresh-cut grass went in, and I was taking in that scene. There was almost like a deja vu, something triggered inside, and I knew, I knew this was coming. And now it's here, and the day will come, thanks when we will stand in his presence, in his kingdom, in what we were made for. And the amazing thing is that's because of Jesus and Jesus alone. Because if it wasn't for him, then you and I, we haven't gotten there yet. I know this is a spoiler, but do you know what? Adam's going to ruin it. (laughs) He's going to ruin it for himself, and then he's going to ruin it for every one of us. But because of Jesus, the day is coming when it will be as it should be. And that is the day that we await. One final thought, and then we close. Someone says, was this a test? Was this probationary? Was it possible that Adam obeyed God and didn't partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And what would have happened had that been the outcome rather than what Adam did in partaking of the fruit? And my answer to that is an emphatic and absolute no. It was not a test. It was not probationary. And God absolutely 100% knew that Adam was going to partake of this fruit and everything that was going to happen. You say, I understand that from a theological standpoint. But it makes me wonder, when I look around in the world today and I see all of the problems that that has caused... And I see the epidemic that sin has brought into the world. 
And I see the immense level of suffering that it has brought upon humanity and upon that which touches my life and that which is my life. And I say, how could a God of love have known that that was going to take place and yet have put that tree in the garden to begin with? Here's why. And I'll give you two reasons why God put that tree in the garden to begin with, knowing everything that would come from it. Because number one, it was the only way wherein God could demonstrate to anyone, whether it be angels or man, the depths and the reality of his love. Because the Bible tells us that, that, that maybe for a good man, for a good person, one of us would dare to die, but that God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the cross was plan A from the very beginning, and God planting the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the setup for God coming into the world himself, living on this cursed ground, bearing the curse of human sin upon himself, and thereby purchasing the redemption that you and I can freely receive, that we might go to heaven and be set free from this curse. And had that not happened, and had Adam gone into eternity never eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we never would have suffered, but we would never know the depths and the riches of his love. We would never see the lamb having been slain from the foundation of the world and realize that those wounds were inflicted by us and for us, that we might know how much he loved us. We would never know that. The other reason why God put that tree in the garden to begin with knowing that man would partake of it and then all of us would feel the effects of that curse, is because God is relentlessly and constantly and fiercely using the effects of that curse in our lives today to prepare us for what we will be eternally. The sufferings that we face in this world, whether they be sufferings in our bodies with our health, whether they be sufferings in the circumstances that we go through in the darkness of this life, whether they be sufferings in our marriages and in our relationships and our dealings with other human beings, whether they be sufferings in our mind and the mental state of our anxiety, our depression, or the things that we're going through that we can't understand, or whether it be the complex problems that are a combination of all of those things and much more that come to us on a daily basis, all of those things are perfectly calculated and being used in the hand of God to prepare us for what is yet to come, both on earth and in heaven forever eternally. And they are absolutely necessary if God brings them to bear upon our lives. In the 1600s, there was a man named John Bunyan. He wrote a classic book called The Pilgrim's Progress. And it's an allegory of the Christian life. The main character is Christian. And Christian gets saved and he goes through this life in this world and he goes through all these trials and experiences and along the way he meets all these people, worldly wise man, evangelist, faithful, hopeful, and all those people are those people and you learn so much. I recommend that book, second to the Bible, the most important book, awesome. And there's a scene in that book where Christian, the main character, is walking with faithful, another man. And Christian is testifying to how hard he had it in the valley of the shadow of death. He says, when I was in the valley of the shadow of death, I thought I was going to die there. The darkness, the demonic nature of it, the voices I heard, the dangers, the temptations, the trials, the satanic expressions, I didn't think I was going to make it out of that valley alive. It was the hardest, most difficult, arduous thing I've ever had to go through in my life. And then he looks at Faithful and he says, what was it like for you? And Faithful looks back at Christian and he says, you know what? 
I don't really remember that valley that much. All I remember is high noon, the sun was up. Everything was fair. The skies were great. I made it through with relative ease. I saw where my feet were going, and I didn't experience anything that you experienced. It was easy. Christian was like, what? I almost died there. Do you know how hard that was for me? And then Faithful looks at Christian, and he says, yeah, but you know what? When I came out of that valley, I met this woman, and she was supposed to be a help to me. Her name was, I think, Love Lust. And she put it to me so hard. And I can't tell you, she almost ripped my heart out of my chest and left me for dead upon the way. I didn't know if I would ever make it to heaven after what she did to me. And Christian looked back and said, her? She was nothing. You were taken by that? I remember reading that for the first time and something struck me. I realized, you know what? We all go through something or some things or many things. Nobody goes through everything. But what we go through, whether it be marriage, whether it be health, whether it be money, whatever it is, whatever we go through, God has designed that we go through that for the purposes that he is seeking to bring forth within our lives, get out of our lives, invest in our lives, or prepare us for in the future things that we don't even know about yet. And he is wise and skillful, and he doesn't waste moves. And God knew all of that when he put that tree in the garden to begin with. Don't despise the sufferings that you're feeling right now because God is using those things in your life and he's not going to waste one iota of it. Romans 8.18, Paul the Apostle said, and I close with this, musicians, you can come. He said, For I perceive that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. No matter what we suffer because of that tree, it's going to pay off in the end. God knows what he's doing. Known of God are all his works from the beginning of the creation. Like David said in Psalm 139, all of our members, our days, circumstances, the things that happen to our life, are written in his book when as yet in continuance there were none of them. God knows right where you are today. He knows right where I am today. He knows what's coming. He's calculated it. He's got us in his hand. And what we need to look at is the foundation because the foundation makes sense of the outcome. God had it in his hand at the beginning and he will have his hand on it until the end. Amen? Father, we thank you, Lord, for what's revealed to us in your word. We thank you for the preciousness of your truth. And as we sit here tonight, O oh God, and consider who it is that we serve and worship, we're so abundantly grateful for all that we have and all that you are. So, Father, where we sit, where we are, in our journey, in our walk, on our path, we give all to you. We trust you. We hope in you. Please, Lord, make us lovers of your word, lovers of your ways, lovers of your son. And help us, Lord, to trust you completely with every facet and element of our lives. We put our hope in you tonight, O oh God. And we pray, as so many have for the ages, come quickly, Lord. How we long to see you in your glory and in your kingdom that you've prepared from the foundation of the world. May we, O oh God, the Christians here tonight, Calvary Chapel of the Hudson Valley, may we be accounted worthy to escape the things that are coming upon the earth and to stand before the Son of Man. For we have put our trust in you, the faithful shepherd. 
We thank you, Lord, for these things. We ask you to go with us. Let your presence be known by us as we walk out of this room. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Let's all stand together.